And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back for another episode of the Startup Hustle. This is your host, Matt Watson. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Chris Harbert, who's the founder and CEO of Testery. He's joining us from Columbia today, and we're not talking about Columbia, South America. We're talking about Columbia, Missouri. Um, who has its own little startup community in a college town there from Mizzou, if those are familiar with Mizzou. So we'll talk about that today, too. His company specializes in helping people optimize test automation. If you've got hundreds, thousands of, of tests to run, browser tests, he's got a solution to help you with that. We'll talk about some best practices for that, how he started his company, the problem he solves, and his journey today. Before we get started, I do want to remind you today's episode is brought to you by Fullscale, which is my company. We have 300 employees in the Philippines that help companies like Chris and other startups and scale-ups uh, grow their development team from our staff in the Philippines. So you can check us out at fullscale.io if you're looking to grow your development team. So Chris, welcome to the show, man, from Columbia. Yeah, thank you for having me, Matt. And as we are recording this today, it's Valentine's Day, so happy Valentine's Day. And also, there's a Kansas City parade going on at this exact moment for the Chiefs. So go Chiefs! Uh, yeah, it's a it's a pretty busy day around here. It's a, it's a fun time to be in Missouri. And before we get started, I I would love to talk to you for a moment about Columbia. What, what is it like mm-hmm. to have a startup in Columbia? And there are some really big name companies that people don't realize are actually from Columbia and. A lot of the people that are listening to this right now probably use one of them for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that was some of the inspiration for me being able to start my company here. Uh, you know, when I initially went to start the company, a lot of folks said, well, you can't do it in Columbia, Missouri. You've got to move out to the Bay Area, maybe Austin, maybe Boulder, but you can't do it here. And, you know, I took that as a bit of a challenge, but you know, like many people, I was also here for family reasons. So, uh, you know, my folks' family is from St. Louis. My wife's family was from Boonville. Uh, And so it made sense for us to be here just from a family perspective. And then at the same time, you know, I had worked here for companies like Carfax, uh, the company that does the vehicle history reports. Uh, Everybody knows that one. Yeah, we had a website that I think we had 80 million visitors per year at the time I was working there, a very cutting edge company. This was back in the mid 2000s. And so we had a big web presence. It was a very well done website, a very well run company. And there's a lot of talent in this area of people who either currently work there or have worked there. And I just said, you know, I feel like these people who say you've got to go to the Starbucks in the Bay Area and write your idea on a napkin are missing out on this huge portion of talent to, that's in the Midwest. And so yeah, 100%. for me, that was part of it is I, I really wanted to dispel that myth. Um, 
but then also looking around, uh, you know, through things like Startup Weekend, we've had companies like Zapier, who is also a very well-known company, uh, more of their billion-dollar valuation. I don't know what they're up to. Uh, another company called Equipment Share, uh, and there are others that are getting started as well. And it's been amazing in the last five years to see what's changed. Uh, so I, I started Testry seven years ago. And when I started the company, I didn't feel like I had a whole lot of support in the area. I mean, I, I did have some good support through programs through the university, uh, Missouri Technology Council. Uh, so I, I can't say there wasn't any support in the area. Uh, but if you look at things now uh, with some of the success stories we've had with the world moving to be more remote friendly, a lot more people are interested in this area ever, than ever before. And so it's been pretty exciting seeing those changes. And I, I feel like we've got a really good startup community going now. Well, uh, Zapier took the other approach though, right? Like those, didn't their story start with like they won startup weekend or something and then then they moved to seattle so it's like the company's actually based in seattle but the original founder had origins in columbia yeah so so my understanding is they started out in columbia uh, i think one of the founders did move to the west coast uh, i don't think it was seattle i thought it was the bay area okay um but that said, uh, you know, they did get started here and they were also one of the first remote first companies. So because of that, they ended up having their first employees, you know, from everywhere, basically. Yeah. Uh, so it, it didn't really feel so much like it was a Columbia based startup, um, but it did have its roots here. And a yeah. lot of the early employees uh, lived here throughout their journey is my understanding. So. So tell us a little more about what led you to this idea and why did you start this company seven years ago? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I like to say about that is, you know, my whole life I had wanted to start a company and I kept thinking I needed to come up with some kind of widget that didn't exist. Like what's that idea, you know, some kind of new coffee maker or, or something like that. And then I realized one day that, you know, even if I did come up with some new coffee maker that doesn't exist, I know nothing about manufacturing. I'm not in the business of creating widgets, but I have been doing test automation and I've been doing some really unique things with test automation for a long time. And companies keep paying me to reinvent the wheel and redo the things that I just did for the previous company. So there's got to be an idea there. So for me, the aha moment was that you don't need an aha moment. Uh, you just need to be really good at something and you need to be willing to commit to it and give it everything you've got to, to be the best you can be at it. Well, most entrepreneurs start out trying to solve a problem for themselves or they do something that they become an expert at, right? And then everybody keeps coming to them, you know, like yourself, like I'm an expert at this thing. Everybody keeps asking me about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Some people like yourself have that aha moment of like, well, I don't scale, but everybody wants my expertise. How do I productize my expertise? Is that kind of how you felt like that's how, you know, was the genesis of this? It's like, how do I productize myself? I don't think it was so much about productizing myself as it was 
the problem I was trying to solve was getting full stack testing to run reliably at scale. And rewind seven years ago, uh, things like Docker were still relatively new. Uh, you know, when I f first got started, I think ECS had only been around two years and I had been using it since the day it came out. Right. So this was still pretty, pretty cutting edge stuff. And I needed the ability to run full stack tests at scale reliably, you know, whether it's a web test, an API test, database validation, the company I was working for at the time, we were testing thousands of machine learning models doing AI and we had big data databases that were processing, you know, a million records per second. The tools that were available at the time were Selenium Grid. Right. And Selenium Grid is great for helping you run web tests. It has some architectural challenges that make it, you know, a little difficult to scale reliably. Um, but it doesn't help you at all with running API tests, database tests, uh, you know, running tests that run against Hadoop or Hive or any of that kind of stuff, right? And so I needed the ability to run any kind of test at scale. And that was really when I first realized that something like Testery needed to exist. Well, let's talk about this topic for a minute because I, I think it's an important topic that most people don't fully understand and, and don't understand unless you've lived through it. And my point is most things with software development or testing are fairly simple to do, like setting up a, a few tests with Selenium or Cypress or any of these things is a fairly trivial thing to do. There's work, but it's, it's fairly straightforward. Just like building software that I build an API and I get a few customers that use it, fairly easy to do. At scale, it's a really damn hard problem, really yeah. hard. Nobody understands until you've been through that though, right? Mm -hmm. Because at Stackify, my previous company, we processed billions of data points a day that creates all sorts of problems, right? Like how you scale it, how do you do releases, all the all the possible problems that could happen, you have all of them, right? It's like mm -hmm. if something fails in IT, like we say, oh, our SLA is 99.9%. .9%. Like that's really good. Uh, that means it fails one in a thousand times. Mm -hmm. So if I'm handling a billions of things a day, guess what? One in a thousand times is a lot of problems, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. But and that's and that's why big companies also move so slow, because the complexity to handle these things at scale is a different set of challenges that nobody understands unless you've lived through it. And what your experience was living through it on the testing side, like, it's a whole different set of problems that people don't understand unless they've had to deal with it. And now you have customers that are coming to you that have lived through these problems and it, they have a unique set of problems that you can help solve those unique set of problems, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad that you bring that up because scale and reliability, uh, you know, that's really what sets Testry apart from other options that are available right now. Uh, I like to compare us to, you know, that Honda Civic that's got a really amazing souped up engine put in it after the fact. Uh, you know, from the outside, it looks like a regular car, but the difference is when you go to drive it, what's going to actually happen, right? And for us, being able to scale tests means that, you know, we're running right now, I believe, uh, 4 million tests per month 
for paying customers on our platform. Uh, we're up to, uh, since we started this journey, since we started measuring, uh, 84 or 85 million test executions. And so when I say scale, you know, I'm talking about that and, uh, you know, parallelism, right. Uh, I, I can't count the number of times I've heard people say, well, we already parallelize our testing. And in fact, we just went from running two concurrent to now we're running 15 concurrent. Uh, well, I've done individual test runs where we were running 3,000 concurrent tests. Yeah. And we were able to get 100% passing after identifying some bugs that were fixed prior to the customer going live. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, being able to run 3,000 concurrent tests or being able to run 4 million tests per year and get reliable yeah. results every single time, knowing that you're part of someone's critical infrastructure, right? So we have customers like uh, the folks over at Atlassian who, if they can't ship their software, it's a really big deal. And if they can't ship their software because there's a problem with testry, and that gets escalated up to the executives at this multi-billion dollar software company. You don't want that uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's that that that's just it's not a, a happy place to be. And so we treat every single test as like the thing that must work, right? And that's the mentality we bring to software testing that's different than what you would find from, from your ordinary QA team that's embedded inside of a company who may or may not get the, the budget they need to do the things they're trying to do. Uh, you know, I, I like to say, uh, your QA is our production and that's the way that we live yeah. as a company. Uh, and that means things like logging and monitoring and getting alerts when things aren't passing. Uh, and so that's the level of rigor we bring to people's software testing. I love that your QA is our production. So I want to go back to the the scale issues for a moment and talk about that a little more because mm -hmm. I think it's important for people to understand. So you talk about a week, you know, running two uh, two QA tests at a time, and then. 15 at a time, and now you're on 3,000 at a time. The challenges that you have when you would run 3,000 at a time, there must be some mind-blowing edge cases in there that people would never have when you're at two, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, I have to run this test before that test, or I can't run these two tests at a time, or just when I run these tests, it's going to kill the database mm -hmm. if I tried to run all 3,000 of them at a time, right, depending on the types of tests they were were. I'm going to guess you guys have seen a lot of weird, crazy things happen at that sort of scale. Yeah. Yeah. So there are weird things that happen on the testing side. And then there are weird things that happen on what we call the system under test side. So the, the system under test would be the, the website that we're trying to test to make sure that it works properly or the API, whatever it happens to be. Uh, you know, we've seen issues where, you know, they chose a particular technology for reading and writing messages. Um, so their websites are sending asynchronous messages back and forth between different services. And maybe they chose a technology that's really optimized for reads, but does horribly when it comes to doing concurrent writes. If you're only running two tests at a time 
15 tests at a time, you never really encounter that problem. Where you start to encounter that problem is when you're really hammering the system with a lot of traffic. And so that's just one example is, you know, hey, maybe you picked the wrong technology for this particular level of scale in your journey. And the same thing actually happens on the software testing side, right? So Selenium Grid wasn't really designed, I might get in trouble for saying this, um, but Selenium Grid, if so if anybody isn't familiar with what Selenium Grid is, uh, Selenium is one of the tools that you can use for automating tests. And Selenium Grid is this grid of browsers that you can spin up for being able to run those tests, right? Uh, the problem that Selenium Grid solves really well isn't parallelization. And a lot of people think that it's supposed to be there for parallelization. But the problem that Selenium Grid solves really well is being able to give you any version of any browser on any environment. And so if you're doing cross-browser testing and, and like, let's say you're Samsung and you want to make sure that your website works on every version of every mobile device they've ever made and every browser they could run on that, Selenium Grid's a wonderful option for that. But if you're trying to run 3,000 concurrent tests through Selenium Grid, uh, good luck, because that's not really what the tool was architected to be able to do. And so I think that's one of the differences when you take a look at Testry and trying to scale and being able to support your entire team uh, no matter how many teams there are, no matter how many technologies they're using for their automated tests, you're going to eventually encounter these challenges with scale. So and part of the reason I, I love this conversation is, and you alluded to this early on, it, it, it's like you're trying to figure out what kind of business you want to do. And you think about, oh, we have all this competition. But you guys figured out your niche. You're like, look, Selenium Grid is great for these use cases. It's not great for these use cases. So we can go be the experts at these specific use cases, and we can win, right? We can have a successful business, even though there's all these competitors, do all these other things. You guys figured out there was a specific need in the market, and you focused on that need in the market. <laughs> yeah, and and i got to admit it was – it was very intimidating. And, you know, if you're going through the whole fundraising aspect of things, uh, I mean, going out and talking to investors and telling them you want a little extra room in this really crowded market is uh, not an easy sell to make, right? They, yeah, they, they, they say the there's no market. shortage of tools. It's already saturated. There's no more money to be made. It's a race to the bottom. Uh, that's true for so many industries, right? And the moment it's not true is when another company comes in and finds that niche and fills it, does it in a disruptive way. And then now all of a sudden everybody says, oh, now there's this huge new market of opportunity that wasn't there before, right? Yeah. So if you want to be the company that finds that huge new market that wasn't there before, you've got to enter a crowded market, right? I mean, there aren't that many totally original new ideas that have never been tried before. <laughs> uh, but there are totally new ways to solve existing problems. And, and so what really attracted me to the QA space was, uh, I think I looked at some industry reports and, and put some numbers together 
over a trillion dollars per year is spent on QA with roughly a third going to tools, a third going to people, and a third going to infrastructure. So that's a massive amount of money. Uh, I like to compare that to the GDP of Australia, which is roughly the same amount, right? So you can imagine there's an entire continent of people where their entire economy is equivalent to the amount that companies globally are spending on quality. So that tells me it's a huge problem, right? Huge problem to solve. Now, how many companies do you know of who say they're doing QA really well and they like their approach and they don't have any bugs? There aren't that many, right? (laughs) My, My software never has any bugs. It's always perfect, Chris. Yeah. Okay. Well, there there are people with uh, there are people with uh, good quality, and then there are liars. <laughs> hey. Hey. Okay. All right. Fine. Uh, ouch. I wasn't trying call, to call I you was, out there. Just before this, <laughs> I was actually researching a bug. I admit, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it happens to the best of us, and you know, being a QA company, uh, a company that makes uh, software as a service for running automated tests. Uh, there's no shortage of irony left for me when my company happens to produce a bug and I take it very personally, even though I know it happens to the best of us. Um, but given the space that we're in, it feels extra bad to, to ship with bugs. But my point is that because companies spend so much on quality and at the same time, they're so dissatisfied with the results they're getting, it's a market that is just ready to be disrupted, right? There's got to be a better way to do this. The value is there if only somebody can figure out how to do it. And one of the other things I looked at is there's a big shift in the market of the skills and experience required to do the job, right? So if you go back to the 80s or the 90s, there's a lot more emphasis on manual testing is the way to do it. Yep. Uh, we're going to have people click on buttons and even if they have to click on the same buttons over and over again, we're going to do that because we want to ship good quality software. More and more today, developers are being asked to write tests. Testers are being asked to write code. And so the skills and experience required to do software testing is going up every day. Now you've got to be an expert at the UI, APIs, databases, you've got to be an expert at writing code, fixing bugs, Selenium. But it's but it's going up and going down at the same time, right? Like we, we also have solutions now like Playwright and Cypress and things like this that make it easier than it's ever been before to do testing. Yeah, so, so even with Cypress and Playwright being easier perhaps um, than earlier solutions, uh, there's still code involved in writing it. Um, and so there's still a certain amount of coding job. And you could argue that, well, no code solutions are are going to take over. And that's probably true. And once they get there, they will be the disruptive solutions that we were dreaming about six or seven years ago, right? <laughs> you know... Uh, so they're, they're they're definitely operating in a good market. It's just the question is, can they fulfill the promises that they've set out to deliver on? And I think once somebody gets there, uh, I mean, once we get to the point where 
you can have a fully autonomous thing, take a look at a website and tell you what are all the bugs and does it work or not. Uh, then yeah, maybe we don't need quite so many people doing these other tasks. Um, or maybe those people will still be doing their jobs. They'll just be a lot more efficient and shipping well, new things faster and of higher quality. Right. So, I mean, I can tell you how this relates to us at full scale, you know, so we do software development for our clients. We also do QA for our clients. So we have manual QA people and we have automation, you know, engineers that do QA automation. And, you know, for our planning going forward, I expect anybody who does manual QA to also learn and be familiar with doing low code and no code QA, right? Like at least like point click recording, um, being able to edit like really basic kind of scripts that, that some of these, you know, tools use, like even people that they're not software developers should be able to do like the basics of that stuff. Right. And then mm-hmm. of course, QA engineers can do, you know, a lot more fancier, more complicated things, but we're also talking about all of our developers, every single developer that we hire needs to have a baseline training around how to make like a playwright or a Cypress script. And I'm partly going to blame you for this, Chris, because I'm like, after talking to Chris so many times, like, <laughs> I feel like all of our developers should need to know how to do this. And I was talking to our dev leadership yesterday. I'm like, you know, developers should be able to write unit tests. They should also be able to write really simple, basic browser automation tests. Like they need to test their own freaking code. Mm-hmm right? That doesn't mean they sit around and they do QA all day long. Like they're still software developers, but they should be able to do these basic tests just like they would do basic unit tests. And I'm sure that makes you really smile and makes you feel really good inside that I'm saying that. Uh, It does. It makes me warm and fuzzy. So, (laughs) uh, you know, as somebody who, you know, I got my start as a developer and pretty early in my career started doing test-driven development. Yeah. So for anyone who's not familiar with test-driven development, it's this idea that you write the test first and then you write the code to get the test to pass. And then you do what's called refactoring, which is cleaning up the code a little bit. And I was fortunate enough to work in an environment doing that. And some would argue that test-driven development is a little too overboard on the testing. Uh, Leave that conversation and debate for another day. But working in an environment like that uh, really teaches you to appreciate the importance of testing as a tool for making developers more productive and for helping developers produce a higher quality, better architected software system. And so, yeah, I absolutely feel that, uh, you know, unit and integration testing are just part of the job. Yeah. Uh, I think we're at that point where, you've got to do a certain amount of it and you're going to be better off if you do it before you write the code, because then you're being deliberate about what needs to be tested and what code you're about to write. And then, Hey, by the way, you know, when you're done writing the code, um, now do you do that to try to get to 98% code coverage and write a test for everything that that might be a bit more, um, but there should be some baseline of tests that developers are writing as they're writing the code. So you you mentioned something earlier just in passing that I'm still blown away by. You have Atlassian as a customer. Yeah. How in the world did you get them as a customer? The, the little company from Columbia, Missouri has Atlassian, one of the giants in our industry from Australia, as a customer. 
Yeah. Yeah. So some combination of hard work and serendipity, uh, maybe just plain dumb luck, I guess. Uh, so when I started Testry, uh, you know, I naively thought if I just build a prototype of this thing that it's gonna work. And if I just make it cheap enough, people will flock to it and buy it. So, you know, build a test automation platform and start it at $5 a month and I'll have a whole ton of customers and then I'll start raising the price until I get to where it really should be. Right. Uh, that's not how software as a service works. Uh, <laughs> and so I was about six months into my journey. Um, I had gone and I had demoed this platform to everybody I knew and got a whole lot of, oh yeah, that looks really cool. That's interesting. We might try it at some point. We're not quite ready. And I had gotten down to like the last thousand bucks in my checking account. Uh, you know, I was really... It was in a tough situation. And so I had applied to work at real jobs, quote unquote, real jobs. And so I got flown out for an interview at a, a pretty good company. Uh, believe they're a fortune, let's say fortune 500 company. Uh, and it was just helping them out with test automation. I think it might've been a lead position. Uh, honestly, a bit of a demotion from what I had previously been doing. Uh, but I was getting back to the point of like, I really need to make the numbers work again. You need to figure out how I'm going to pay the mortgage. <laughs> yeah. And while I'm sitting in the hotel room after the interview, I get this phone call that says, uh, Hey, Chris, are you still doing that testery thing? Uh, because I know we gave you a no five months ago, but things have changed. We've got a little bit of budget. We might be interested in doing something. Would you be interested in demoing this to our CEO tomorrow. So I said, yeah, absolutely. Let's do this. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. Uh, so the next morning, about two hours before my flight home, I'm demoing this early version of the test tree prototype. Uh, it was working like it would run tests and everything. Uh, we obviously didn't have the ability to scale like we do now, but it was a pretty slick working demo. And they said, uh, yeah, this looks like this looks like this could work for us. Let's try to make something happen here. And that was all I had to go off of. So that was where the demo ended. Uh, I was really excited, but then I was like, what on earth is going to happen? Right. <laughs> so I get home, uh, flew home and the next day get a phone call from this company that says, Hey, we've decided to offer you the job. It was a you know pretty cushy <laughs> six figure job. Uh, and I was like, well, can I have the night to think about it? And so in the background, I'm trying to close this contract. This would be our <laughs> first customer. Really got to know if this is going to happen. And I think it went for about three days. And then they said, you know what, Chris, we need to know by the end of the day, we've got somebody else we're going to make the offer to if, if you're not interested. Are you going to do this or not? And I don't know if it's the smartest thing I've ever done or the dumbest thing I've ever done. But with almost no money left in the bank, I, I turned down the sure thing to take a day job doing something I knew how to do for a, a good company on the hopes that this contract would close. Um, it still took maybe two or three more weeks after that to close. <laughs> oh, man. Which I didn't realize was going to be the case. Um, 
But after that happened, uh, that company ended up being a company called Agilecrafts. Uh, and Agilecraft, if you've heard of, um, two or three years after that, ended up getting acquired by Atlassian for something like 150 million, 160. Okay. Million. Uh, really amazing company. And so all along the way, Testry was helping them get their automated tests in place, was helping them get their tests up and running on our platform. And so when they were acquired by Atlassian, it was only natural that the Testry came with them. Uh, and so here we are, um, six and a half, maybe years after that phone call. And wow. they're still one of our customers. Uh, running thousands of tests on our platform uh, every release. And so it's such a cool thing to see how much that's progressed and to have them as a customer. So it, so after they got acquired, were you able to expand and do more with Atlassian or do you still kind of work in that business unit? Yeah, so we're still primarily in that business unit. So okay. I don't know if there are other folks at Atlassian wondering why you're missing out. Uh, talk to me after the show. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we're, you know, business units over there are also pretty big. So it's basically right. a company within a company right. and we're working with a lot of different teams. We're running a lot of different types of tests across a lot of different projects. Um, but yeah, I mean, pretty much in any company, there's always, uh, especially once you get to these bigger companies, there's always another team running another kind of tests. And so, uh, there's, there's room for more over there. So that's an incredible story, man. Um, roll of the dice, right? Like, here we go. We're going to try and got to make this work, you know, and it all worked out for you. And so that that's an absolute incredible story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I look back on how close I was to giving up. And, uh, you know, I, I had heard this story. Um, you know, some, some of your listeners might be familiar with this story, but it's this idea of not giving up six feet from gold or something like that. Uh, so the story goes that, uh, there was some guy who was digging in a gold mine and he didn't find any gold and he spent his fortune trying to find gold. And then, uh, someone else comes along to buy the gold mine, dig six feet. And then they, they're the ones that strike the riches. Yeah. And, the. Uh, the moral of that story is supposed to be that, Hey, you don't give up without consulting experts first. Like if you're that close, you, you keep going. And I was probably at that spot in my, my life, right. Where I was, uh, and, and I've since found that you end up back at that spot multiple times, uh, in your journey. I might've even been at that spot two days ago. <laughs> yeah. As an entrepreneur, that feels like every, every week. <laughs> yeah. I, I always feel like I'm six feet from gold. It's just a bigger pile of gold that I'm six yeah. feet from. Well, and there's six uh, feet of lava the other way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, six feet away, there's lava the other way. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, it definitely doing what we do definitely takes, uh, there's no better way to say it than just pure grit that, you've got to continue going in the face of adversity. You've got to be mentally tough to deal with the downs, but you've also got to be mentally tough to deal with the ups in such a way that you don't cloud your judgment when they happen. Right. Uh, you know, I, I think, 
I think we encounter both halves of that coin that, you know, sometimes we want to give up because things are going tough and we wish they were going better and we have an uncertain future and we're not sure what's going to happen a week or two from now or a month from now. And a lot of people talk about being mentally tough when that happens. Um, but I think you also have to be mentally tough when the successful things happen, right? It's way too easy to have things going well. And then you're like, well, things are just going to keep going well. I think we finally made it through the hard part. <laughs> and, you know, then something catastrophic happens. So, yeah, here's another, uh, here's another good tidbit. Um, so we, our first year in business, we survived you know, the whole getting to your first customer thing, which is a tough obstacle to get over. Uh, I believe the second year was, I might be getting the years wrong, but uh, I think the second year was a bit of a recession. And then the third year was when our office got hit by the tornado that went through Jeff City. Oh, geez. Uh, Jefferson City, Missouri. Yeah. Uh, so we were working in a co-working space there, Um Tornado came through, completely leveled it. Uh, then the year after that was, I think the year after that was COVID or the year after that was recession. But we basically had like one year, no revenue, one year getting hit by a tornado, yeah. uh, two years of COVID, a year of mass uh, tech layoffs. And so with all the uncertainty that's in the world, combined with the uncertainty of just doing a startup in general, uh, you know, those moments where things are going really well and everything seems to be clicking uh, are really moments to treasure. Uh, but it's also moments that you don't want to take for granted and assume are always going to be there um, because the next COVID is around the corner, the next recession where tech companies are going to lay off 10% of their staff could happen interest rates could change. There's just so much in the world that you never know control over. And you, and you don't know if those things are going to help you or hurt you, right? Like yeah. there, there are certain events like that. Like, you know, it sucks that there was a tornado and it destroyed your office, but whoever's job it was to clean that crap up was super happy, right? Like there, there's, there's people that also make money when they're, when bad things happen, right? Like during COVID you had people that were doing online education that just blew up like crazy. But on the same side, like I invest in a company that did events and like, well, they would just died, right? Like you never know when these, when these things happen too, if you're going to be on the good side or the bad side of, of what happens. And, and during COVID, there were a lot of people that were on one side or the other, you know, there were a lot of people that COVID was a huge advantage to them. And there were a whole lot of us where it was not an advantage at all. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think about that a lot is the, the mental toughness aspect. And, you know, one of the reasons that I didn't start the company sooner that I think is something that affects a lot of people who are thinking about starting businesses is, uh, you know, the fear of the uncertainty of the future and, I just made a very conscious decision up front that I wasn't going to fail to act because I was afraid of what might not happen. Yeah. Right. You right. have to control as Greg, Greg, our uh, head of sales at full scale always says, it's like, we have to control the controllables. 
<laughs> and we can't control anything else, right? It's like we can only do what we can do, but and just try and stay focused on what we can actually control, what we can actually influence, and the rest of it you just can't kill yourself about. Yeah. And and keeping in mind that we can influence a lot more than we sometimes think we can. Absolutely. Um, so one one thing I wanted to ask you about, um, like you you have customers like Atlassian. And you talk about, well, how do I expand in Atlassian and grow into their business units and, and whatever? That's like complicated enterprise sales, mm-hmm. right? So how do you balance doing that kind of enterprise sales with potentially selling to a little startup that wants to pay 200 bucks a month or whatever it is you guys charge? Like, how, how do you balance both of those types of customers? Yeah, it's it's really tough because organizationally, you really should probably, if you're being rational about it, focus on one or the other. And the the reason I say that is if you're going after small and medium-sized businesses, you're probably going to want a marketing-heavy approach where people are finding you somehow, they're seeing something, they're taking action on their own to sign up. Maybe they have a free trial uh, and then they're getting upsold through the platform to get into the higher plans. And that's like the typical, this is how you do small and medium business. Uh, with the bigger companies, it's a lot more about the relationships you develop and the reputation you build for being able to solve the hardest of problems at the biggest of scale. Right. So, you know, for me, part of how I've been able to, or how my company has been able to stick around with some of these bigger companies is we have very experienced people on our team, people with 10 to 20 years of experience doing this kind of stuff. Uh, A lot of us were doing Agile before Agile was even a well-known thing. And if we weren't focused on the test automation side of things, we could be out there being Agile consultants, uh, teaching these companies, you know, how to do sprints and story planning and all that kind of good stuff, right? so you got the enterprise sales, which is very much traditional sales heavy. You've got the SMB stuff where it's more about content marketing, drawing people to the website. Yeah. Yep. And to be honest, there's not a good balance. Um, well, I, and I, so I had this problem at Stackify. You know, we were trying to, you know, we our average customer paid like $250 a month. And I always described it like we were trying to catch a lot of fish. And once in a while, we would catch a whale. Like, we would, they would just randomly, like, swim up into the net. But it's a totally different, and, and maybe that's more like your business, but it's totally different if you're like, I don't want those little fish. I don't even want them as customers. I only want the whales, right? But but it's it's hard to do both. It's hard to optimize for both of those because your customer acquisition costs are different, the type of salespeople you hire are different, the types of marketing you are, you do are different. Like at Stackify, I couldn't afford, you know, $20 per click on Google for certain keywords if I knew my average customer was going to spend $250 a month, where my competitor, if their average customer spent $5,000 a month, could afford that. So you know what? They outbid us in all the pay-per-click. Like there was no way we could do pay-per-click. Like it, there was the ROI of it didn't make any sense because our average customer didn't spend enough money, right? Like these are like weird, hard problems to solve for. Yeah. And I- I think part of why I refuse to pick one versus the other is one of the things that I'm most proud of with Testery is the fact that 
we can provide a state-of-the-art technology solution that is useful for the big enterprises, but at the same time, scale that down to the smallest of tech startups and still provide something that's valuable, helps them get started with testing, makes it so some of these things aren't their problem. And to me, what's interesting about that is, uh, you know, the small companies and the big companies, they have the same problem. They do. So I'm solving the same problem for the same kind of people. The differences are more on the sales, marketing, and support side of things, right? And so if I can make the numbers work on one side, I can make the numbers work on the other side too. It's just hard to be balanced about it. Right. And, you know, the, the MBA in me is saying, well, you should find your beachhead market and you should just focus on the beachhead until you solve that particular problem. And then you should expand into others. But it's just so hard to come across someone who has the problem that you're trying to solve and then say, well, we solved that problem really well, but we're not focused on you yet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so that's kind of why we've shied away from that. Um, and yeah, it, it's working well for us because, you know, the, the small startup will still ask for a new report and we'll add that new report. And then the big enterprise will say, wow, we love that new report. It goes both directions, right? Yeah, I think for those who are listening that have this problem, you every business is totally different. You have to figure out like do your your product features, you know, do they work for both or are they totally different? Because a lot of enterprise products want, you know, all this additional reporting and auditing and single sign-on and like all these enterprise kind of features that a little startup like doesn't care about any of that stuff. But it it you know, it, it also affects your like go-to-market strategy because if you go look at a big enterprise product, the sales process is different. Like, oh, we're going to do a demo. We're going to walk through all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. Versus SMB, they're like, I just want to sign up for a free trial. I'm going to go try this thing for 15 minutes, and I'm going to figure out if I want to buy it or not. I don't even want to talk to somebody. right? Like, They're just different kinds of customers. And so it can be really hard to service both. But we tried at Stackify, and like I said, and this may be similar to you. It's like, well, we're trying to service everybody. And then every once in a while, a big whale swims up. And we don't know how we got them, but they showed up. And, you know, we try and have our sales team focus on the ones we think could be whales. Like we put our energy into the ones that we think are the whales. But we're trying to get what are everything in the net. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's where, uh, you know, if you've broken down the sales process before, uh, you know, early stages in the sales process is qualification, right? Right. In sales 101, first thing you're doing is you're asking some qualifying questions to see if they're a prospect or not. Uh, we can tell just by asking four or five questions about a company. Uh, is this going to be the whale type company? Is this going to be the small startup type company? And yeah. we can adapt our approach based on that. So you know, one option would be I ask those five questions and then if they say they're a small company, I just say, sorry. Or if they're a big company, I'm like, I'm not even going to go after that. Or I can ask those five questions and we can adapt our approach based on the responses we get. Yeah. And Push we've been both ways. the latter approach and that's how we've been able to get some really good big customers while at the same time getting some really good small customers. And uh, you know, this is a really cool thing is 
we've had more than a few customers get acquired, right? Uh, Agilecraft turning into Atlassian is one example, but we've had others. And the reason I'm bringing that up is sometimes your small customers overnight become your big customers. Yeah, they do. And so if you're not equipped to deal with big customers, you know, what are you going to do when the small customer gets acquired? Are you going to say, sorry, I don't want to do auditing or worry about single sign on. You're just like on your own. I know you depend on our service to ship all of your deployments, but now that you're at a big company, we're not going to be that partner for you. And I don't want to be that person either. Right. Yeah. We, we see the same thing at, at full scale where, you know, we have about 60 different customers and most of our customers have a team of two to five people. But one of them was a startup that grew and now they have a team of 25. And, you know, they're, I think, our largest customer. So you you just never know, right? Like they turned into a whale for us. Um, and you're just trying to serve everybody. And, you know, if anybody needs help growing their dev team, you can check us out at fullscale.io. Um, Chris, it's been so awesome having you on the show today. I feel like we could talk all day and I was recently on your podcast. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your podcast as well? Yeah. So we have a podcast called developers who test. It's a podcast for developers who want to test their software so they can ship better quality software and have more fun doing it. And, uh, We've been interviewing a lot of people from mostly from a test automation background, um, but also people from a development background. Uh, A lot of good stories about how people got started in their careers and what are some of the trends in software testing. So encourage folks to check us out. All right. Well, do you have any final words of wisdom as we round out the show today? You know, I'm just imagining that out there there's there's the person who's afraid to get started. Uh, you know, they're still working at a full-time job somewhere and they're just dabbling with the whole startup world. And I want people to know it's not all roses and sunshine. Uh, you know, it could be a tough road ahead, but the surest way to fail at a startup is to never get started to begin with. Um, you know, if you never take that leap, then you'll never know if it was in the cards for you or not. And I used to think that that startups were risky, but what's more risky than having a single customer and that single customer is your employer, right? Yeah. It's a lot less risky to go out there and have a thousand customers who all love the services that you're providing. Yep. So maybe that startup thing isn't quite as risky as you think it is, and maybe now's the right time to do it. And the best way to get started is to just wake up an hour earlier tomorrow and spend that hour on whatever you think the world needs to have. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Again, this was Chris Harbert, founder and CEO of Testery. You can check them out at testery.io. We'll also have the links in our show notes. Um, Chris, so thank you so much for being on the show today. And you guys can definitely check out his podcast, check out his company, if you're doing any building any kind of software and you need to build test automation, I'm sure Chris's company will be able to help you guys do that and scale it up and, and run it more effectively. So, Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Matt. It was my pleasure. 
Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. Like we do it.